All right, let's just hop straight into it. I hope y'all are doing great. And I want you to know right off the bat that I am excited to talk about the topic today. Uh, This is going to be a good one. I'm actually really excited about it. We're still in verse one. Okay, we're making our way around, though. We're still in verse one, but we're going to keep chugging right along in our creation series. And today, what we're going to be talking about is the beginning. And every reader approaches Genesis with questions or assumptions about what it should be answering or claims that it's supposed to be making. And for many people across many years, this has been the center of divisions between people's faith and their views about scientific discovery. For many modern readers, when they view Genesis 1, they view it as being literal, like a literal video camera footage of step-by-step exactly what happened. From the beginning of creation to the beginning of time to the beginning of the universe. And this reading would be understandable if Genesis 1 was written by modern authors to modern authors. But for for many readers of Genesis 1, Genesis unfortunately has been their reason to leave the faith because they assume that Genesis 1 should be taken fully literally. And maybe some of y'all have have done this or were taught this. I certainly was taught this uh, in regards to understanding Genesis. When we look at the ages of the patriarchs in the next few chapters that follow, uh, what I was always taught in tradition often says that, oh, the Bible is 100% literal. So what we need to do is add up all the ages of the patriarchs, do some math, and this gets us to the age of the earth and to the age of the universe. And for many, many people, the conclusion that follows does not line up with their scientific beliefs about the age of the universe or the age of the earth. There's just things that don't seem to connect. And for many people, when they read Genesis in this way, through their modern lens of what they assume Genesis is trying to tell us, it creates a conflict between God's word, or at least how they interpret God's word, And what they're being told in school and what they're observing when they look at the world. And these conclusions that we come to stem directly from our misunderstanding of the ancient context that Genesis was written in. And because of this, we assume that the word beginning means the very first point in time. But if we're going to be reading Genesis responsibly, what we need to do is set aside our expectations and our cultural assumptions about what we think Genesis is supposed to be doing. And we need to be able to read Genesis through the lens of an ancient Israelite. And the first step in doing that is to understand what their words meant to them. In a prime example, last episode, if you haven't listened to it already, we looked at the meaning of heaven and earth in the first verse of Genesis. And we discovered that our modern understanding of heaven and earth was completely different and completely foreign to an ancient Israelite's understanding and usage of the words heaven and earth. And just a a quick refresh, Genesis uses the words heaven and earth in a way that would be better understood to us as the word sky and land. 
And we ended last episode with a more literal translation of Genesis 1-1 that better fits the context that the ancient Israelites were speaking in. And it would go like this. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, this is a great first piece to a puzzle that we're going to be continuing to build upon and continuing to try to complete. But today, let's go ahead and put another piece onto this puzzle to try and finish up a better understanding of the very first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning, you know, naturally, we assume that this is speaking about the very first point in time. After all, this is how our English word beginning is often used. I could say the day I was born was the beginning of my life. And that would be literally true. The beginning there is the first point of my existence. I could say the first day of the month is the beginning of the month. And that would be a good use of the word as well, because the first day of the month is the first starting point in the timeline of that month. And this is traditionally how in the beginning is understood when we read through Genesis 1.1. Many of us assume that beginning here means the very first point in time, and so from that, it all follows and flows that everything that's going on in the rest of Genesis 1 is a narrative of, of exactly what God did the second that he decided to bring life and creation into the universe. And although this understanding of the word beginning is correct in modern English, it would fall short if we tried to import this into the ancient Hebrews' use of the word beginning. And it's a good idea for us to first look at what the Hebrew word for beginning is, and then to take a little detour to just try and understand how their word for beginning is often used throughout the Bible. So the Hebrew word for beginning is the word reshit. And just like in last episode, um, I'm not going to tell you just straight up front what the word means and how we should understand it. First, I want to show you some examples of the word reshit being used so that we can observe how it's being used and just come to a conclusion ourselves. The first example is in Job chapter 8, and this is after, you know, Job was living a great life, doing great things for God, and uh, the Satan came up to God and said, hey, look at Job. I bet he will crumble, and I bet he'll turn against you if I just take everything that he has. He only loves you because he has all these things. And God said, I bet. Let's see what happens. And so this is after um, Job's family gets wiped out. All of his possessions are gone. And, you know, his friends are trying to help him make sense of all of this. And this is what it said in Job chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. He says, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will ruse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, 
your latter days will be very great. And in Hebrew, the verse 7 there would say, and though your reshit, your beginning, was small, your latter days will be very great. So here, the entire period of Job's life that happened before this suffering moment, the author is referring to it as his reshit, his beginning. And as we can tell, it seems more proper that beginning here would be referring to more like a beginning period of a part of his life. And the way that parallelism uh, is used literarily, it's distinguishing his insignificant beginning with his latter days, with how great the end of his life will be. And so the beginning here, the reshit in view, is not talking about the moment of Job's birth or the moment of his conception, the literal first point in time of his life. Rather, in context, reshit, beginning, is referring to his whole adult life in the beginning of the book of Job. It's referring to the portion of his life at the beginning of the narrative of Job up until he started suffering. Okay, we're just making observations. Here's another example. In Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 1, and Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 1. In Jeremiah chapter 27, Rashid is used again. It says, In the beginning, or in the Rashid, of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So here, uh, in chapter 27, it may seem that Rashid, or beginning, is referring to the very start of his reign. It's not super clear. However, let's read Jeremiah 28, the very next chapter, because they're going to fill us in on more context about what the beginning is actually referring to for King Zedekiah's reign. It says this, In that same year, referring to the year in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 1, says, In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year. Oh, okay. So here in chapter 28, we get more context that the, the Rashid, the beginning of Zedekiah's reign, is actually referring to a broader period of time because we're told that we're talking about his fourth year as king, but his fourth year as king is being referred to as the beginning of his reign, the Rashid of his reign. So here, beginning is not t- talking about the very first period of time that Zedekiah became king, the very first day of his reign, but beginning, Rashid here, is actually referring to his fourth year as king, but it's speaking about a broader beginning period of time. It's really interesting. Here's another example, uh, back in Job again, Job 42, verse 12, this is after um, God restores Job from the suffering that he was facing, and God's plan is to restore Job with more than what he had at the beginning of his life, which, as we discovered earlier, was just the beginning of his adult life in the narrative. Look at Job 42, verse 12. God said, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. So here is yet another example in Job where Rashid, where beginning, is not referring to the very first point of Job's human life. Rather, 
Rashid is talking about the beginning period of his adult life that the story focuses on at the beginning of Job. So just from these few examples, we can see how the word Rashid or beginning can be used throughout the Bible. And in these examples, it's clear that the Rashid is not referring to the very first point in time, but rather it refers to a broader period of time that comes before the particular subject in focus. So with these observations, what is the conclusion on what Rashid means? Well, let's just look at the word itself. If you were to look up Rashid in a concordance or an interlinear Bible, it would say that Rashid means beginning. But as we can tell in, in context, beginning does not mean a first point point in time, but it refers to a preliminary period of time. But as I said, if you look at it in a concordance, Rashid literally means beginning, but as we saw, the way that the word Rashid is being used, it refers to a broader period of time, and it's not referring to a single first point in time. I had to repeat myself because this is really important. It's really important to how we understand what Genesis 1.1 is saying, it would be like me saying this, to give an English word example. It'd be like me saying, my wife and I ate out a lot at the beginning of our marriage. In that context, you should understand that what I mean is that over a vast, long, subjective period that I classify as the beginning of our marriage, we ate a lot. You understand that I'm not saying the very first point of our marriage, the day that we got married, we ate out a lot. You understand that within the context, I'm saying, hey, the beginning period of our marriage, four or five months, a year, whatever, we ate out a lot. And Rashid in Hebrew operates the very same way. It's very, very similar. Hebrew scholar John Walton says this in his book, Genesis 1 as Ancient Cosmology. He says, quote, in Genesis, the beginning, or Rashid, refers to a preliminary period of time rather than a first point in time. This leads us to conclude that the beginning is a way of labeling the seven-day period of creation described in the remainder of Genesis 1 rather than a point in time prior to the seven days. It provides a literary introduction to the period of creativity that then flows into the rest of the book." End quote. So John Walton and many, many other scholars look at how Rashid is being used in Genesis 1-1 and come to the conclusion that Genesis 1-1 is actually acting as a header. It's just a brief introduction that is chronologically separate from the rest of the narrative. And this understanding of Genesis 1-1 makes a lot more sense when we look at the rest of the narrative of the seven days of creation. One example is this, because oh, we learned last episode that the earth, the land, is not referring to the globe, but it's referring to the dry land. And with this being the case, when we read something like verse 2, and we see that the earth, the dry land, is actually formless and void, or in Hebrew, wild and waste. If the earth was without form and with void, then it would seem odd that verse 1 is telling us that at the first point in time God created the skies and the land. 
if verse two were told that the land that God created is actually in a decreation state because it's formless and void and it's wild and waste. However, if we were to understand verse one in its cultural context, especially with how the language of beginning is being used, then it seems clear that verse one is acting as a header. It's acting as an introduction that leads us into the actual seven-day narrative that then describes how God created the skies and the land. And it would be like, it'd be like saying this, hey reader, uh, way back when, when God created the skies and the land, this is how he did it. This would mean that verse 2 would actually be the start of the creation narrative instead of verse 1. And then the end of the narrative would be in chapter 2, verse 3. But, but let's look. Here's another proof that verse 1 is a header. Is that if we look at chapter 2, verse 4, the actual end of the first movement of the creation narrative. We can see that verse 4 in chapter 2 actually functions like a footer. It functions like an, an ending to the entire creation narrative. It says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Does that language sound familiar at all? It, it should because it's using the same wording as Genesis 1. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. It's as if Genesis 1.1 is acting as the header, while Genesis 2.4 is acting as the footer. And there are intros and conclusions that lead you into and out of the narrative that's between it, which is the seven-day creation narrative. So, with this being the case, what does this understanding of the beginning mean for modern readers? Well, for starters, it means that we have to understand that the authors of Genesis were not concerned with revealing the starting point of all time and existence. Rather, their concern was with more important theological claims that God, the God of Israel, is the only one who created all things, all things that you see, the sky, the land, the creatures, and the life, it all came from the power of one God and no other. And this has huge importance, especially in later episodes when we start to look at how their surrounding cultures believe the cosmos was created. Because we have to understand that ancient Israel was not separated and quarantined from their surrounding cultures. And obviously we know this to be true. Because we can look in the Bible and see all the times in the Old Testament that Israel was punished for worshiping other gods, intermingling with these other cultures, taking in their religion and their beliefs and their lifestyles. And in Genesis, it really is a conversation with these surrounding cultures, myths and beliefs about the ordering and creation of the world. And with their surrounding culture in mind, it makes sense. That Genesis 1-1 would start off by saying, hey, you all see all of this around us? We want you to know Egypt and Canaan and Babylon. We want you to know that this wasn't a result of your false gods. This wasn't a result of your sun god and your moon god and um, Baphomet and Baal. 
we just want you to know that all that you see, it was a result of our God, one God. And he had the power to create it, the sky and the land. He did it all on his own. Now, we're going to go ahead and tell you how he did it. Genesis 1-1 is not concerned with our scientific priorities and assumptions that we want to push on it. That's not even on their radar. Genesis 1 is focused on sharing the more important theological truth that God is the one in control. And however all of this came to be, we can be sure that it was the work of one God, the God of Israel. So for those who wish to read Genesis as a science book, or for those who wish to read Genesis as the story that gives us the age of the earth and the universe, I have bad news is that unfortunately, that is a reading that would be foreign to the ancient authors. That is a reading that we are imposing on the text that was not meant to be there. And as we just saw, the meaning of the words in Genesis 1, the words, the beginning, they do not point to a singular first point in time. But as we saw the words in context, it's very clear that the word beginning is referring to an unspecific preliminary period of time that is acting as the introduction to the rest of Genesis 1. Now, I know for, for some of you, this may mess with your tradition's understanding and uses of Genesis 1. But that's not the Bible's fault. It's our own fault. It's our own fault for imposing our modern way of understanding things. It is our fault for assuming that the Bible is supposed to answer all of these questions that it was never written or meant to answer or contemplate in the first place. And we're going to continue to have these deep misunderstandings of Scripture and these deep rifts between our theological beliefs and the discoveries that we're making throughout scientific studies every day. We're going to continue to have these divisions if we keep trying to impose something on Genesis that is never supposed to be there. And honestly, you get a far more profound understanding and reading of Genesis 1 when you understand that it is, it is God and his ancient authors in communication with the surrounding cultures who have very different and incorrect beliefs about the origins of the world. 